0: seltzer king's podcast network in cooperation with fast eddie's podcast hut present spooktacular 2020 a celebration of the macabre and the infantile what do you mean the network treat bag has nothing in it but candy corn and werther's original Who the hell is running this network, Gavin? My mama? Ass. The following podcast contains... We're going to talk today about profanity. What I've found in my walk with the Lord is that the spirit of profanity is running rampant throughout the world. Explicit Language. Hello, and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. We didn't look into the possibility of alien abduction. What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 283 Play Me Some Mountain Madness Part 2, seeking an explanation to the mystery of the Yuba County Five. Part of Spooktacular 2020. Stay tuned if you dare. The What the Hell Are You Thinking? podcast is brought to you by the 69 Mercury Montego, a car you can get lost in. We at General Motors know the American driver is looking for a car big enough to stand out in a crowd or on a lonely mountain road. That's why our classic Mercury Montego is a massive slab of steel and rubber with room enough for five large basketball players and the solid drivability to take on even the snowiest mountain terrain. The Mercury Montego is the model for getting off the beaten path. Powered by a new 302 cubic inch F-code 2-barrel V8 automatic transmission and coming in coupe and sedan models, the Montego is the car for when you t- want to take to the open road and never know where you might wind up. So stop by your local Mercury dealer and see all the 69 and 68 Mercury Montegos, a car you would love so much, you might never come home.
1: Missing. That's different. That's more important than being lost. Missing gets
0: in the newspapers lost, you're the only one who knows. (laughs) Missing must be important, they actually have a missing persons bureau. You gotta have a place to keep these people while they're gone. You can't let them wander around, these fuckers are missing. You gotta give them a place to sit down and read a magazine and have a hot chocolate while they wait for someone to come and claim them. That's mine, the tall one with the hair. But I don't think anybody's missing. I really don't believe anybody's missing. How can you be missing? Doesn't that violate some law of physics? I mean, if you're not here, you're somewhere else. You might be missing from here. But by God, you're not missing from over there. Jimmy Hoffa isn't missing. He's in an oil drum in New Jersey. I've said before, I was kind of an annoying kid. I mean, yeah, I'm an annoying adult. But as a kid... I was just a huge pain in the ass. How? How is it different? Well, for one thing, I was a very curious kid and I wanted to know not so much how things worked, but rather why things were. I was a hoot in Sunday school, like when I would ask the creepy-ass pedo running the class why God did the things he did, and then I would get the boilerplate bullshit from him about uh, mysterious ways, and it it didn't satisfy. So I would ask in a different way, over and over and over, until finally the pedo snapped and yelled something like, "Away, Get lost, kid! And I would go outside and play, the church was over, which is what I wanted to really do in the first place. Get lost was also something I would hear from my mother from time to time, who was obviously tired of my shit. She would say this without worrying because we lived in towns the size of a postage stamp where it was literally impossible to get lost because it wasn't big enough to not know where you are and where you wanted to go. Nor was I in danger of getting lost in the mountains where my grandparents lived because my grandfather had explained a simple solution if I ever did wander off the beaten path. Follow the water. Yep, just follow the branch down to the creek, and when you arrive at the first moonshine still, ask the bootlegger to take you back to Willie Hicks's place. Or, if they weren't there, follow the creek down to the river, to the railroad tracks, and then ask someone at Webb's store to take you back to Willie's place. It, uh, it happened a time or two, but uh, we don't mention that to my mom. So getting lost isn't something I was ever really afraid of, not even today. I mean, I could pass out on the subway after a long night of drinking, wake up at some random stop in the boroughs and find my way home, no matter how far out I might actually be. Or rehab, probably more like rehab. But I know many people are freaked the fuck out from the idea of being lost and not knowing what to do, which is why this week's story is fucking creepy. And I'm about to make it way fucking creepier. So let's get back to the story of the Yuba County Five. The, the who, what? Oh, come on! Why are you even here if you haven't heard part one of the show? And now I expose you. Expect me to just recap an entire episode that you're too busy to go back and listen to in proper order, like a good podcast listener knows they ought to. The things I do for you, people. Okay, here we go. The short, short version. On February 24, 1978, five developmentally challenged men left their homes in Yuba City, California and drove an hour north to Chico to watch a basketball game. Bill Sterling, Jack Hewitt, Ted Weir, Jack, Jack Madruga, and finally Gary Mathias were all seen leaving Chico around 10 p.m. in Madruga's 1969 Mercury Montego. They never arrived home. A few days later, their car was found miles off the main road, well up into the mountains after a blizzard, but the men were not with the Mercury. It would take four months to find the bodies of four of the men. The body of the fifth man, Gary Mathias, was never found, and his whereabouts are a mystery to this day. Look, you just need to go back and listen to episode number 282 for all the details. It won't make sense until you do, mostly because a lot of jokes that I'm using this week are just reruns from those jokes in that episode. Now... There are many theories as to what happened to the boys. On Amazon Prime. Right. No, no, not that boys. The boys are what uh, everyone who knew the men referred to them as. Though according to sources at the time, they were also referred to as the studs of the special needs community of Yuba City. Which, uh, um, well, okay. And uh, having lived in Yuba City for years, I... I don't think that's as much of an accomplishment as you might think it is.
1: We're a small market team, and you're a small market GM.
0: Anyway, many of those theories revolved around one member of the group, the one who was never found, Gary Mathias. Sterling, Hewitt, Wire, and Madruga were all what could best be described as Typically, developmentally disabled. Though the parlors of the time would use a different term. Dave, don't do this to yourself. Please, I'm being entirely respectful and I will not use the grade 2 vernacular that I would have in 1978. Of those four, Hewitt was the most profoundly impacted by his disability, relying on his mother and his three friends for navigating through the world. Sterling, Wire, and Madruga were all considered and proven to be mildly disabled by their impairments, holding down down jobs. Actually, in the case of Madruga, he was only diagnosed as being of low IQ, but had served honorably in the U.S. Army during Vietnam. Is this from Forrest Gump? Yes, rather like Forrest Gump. And the reason I'm tap dancing around this topic is to provide a contrast to Gary Mathias, who was not developmentally challenged. Go on, say it. You know you want to. Fine, fine. I will just go ahead and get it over with and use the term you were all waiting for me to use. They were minimally exceptional. How would you like to be told that about your child?
1: He's minimally exceptional.
0: Oh, thank God for that. Gary Mathias, on the other hand, was of average IQ. He'd been a football player and played in a band in high school. He was described as slim with dark hair and a small birthmark on the right side of his chin and double vision when not wearing glasses. He was also diagnosed as schizophrenic. He had a history of using drugs from methamphetamine to LSD and in large quantities. And he had a history of violent outbursts and sexual assaults. From a Sacramento Bee article in two, 2019, Quote, Placed in a psychiatric ward as a sophomore in high school, following a bad hallucinogenic trip, he consistently used drugs throughout his service in the U.S. Army in the early 1970s, which included a sharpshooting medal, an AWOL arrest, and a medical discharge for paranoid schizophrenia, according to the sheriff's files. While in sheriff's custody after his AWOL arrest in February of 1973, Matthias called two sergeants and a deputy to his cell, according to case file. When they opened his cell... He walked into the hallway, stark naked, and punched one of the sergeants in the face, sending blood spilling from his mouth and nose. He tried to hit the other sergeant as well, but was subdued. I've been in the Army, and I don't like it, and I thought if I hit a cop, maybe they'd let me out, he told investigators at the time. He later received a medical discharge. This, that same month, Matthias was watching TV at his cousin's house around 8.30 a.m., while the cousin's 17-year-old wife slept groggy for medication used to cope with an ongoing illness. The cousin went out to check on Matthias after a bathroom break turned suspiciously long and allegedly found him straddling the woman, groping her breast as she lay nearly motionless in her underwear, according to case files. The cousin asked Matthias what he was doing, to which he allegedly replied that he wanted to kiss the woman. When the cousin said he was calling 911, Matthias allegedly responded, Good, I want to go back to jail. In his next run-in with law enforcement that December, police have evidence that he'd visited the home of a couple he knew after, after shooting methamphetamines and dropping bennies or swallowing tablets tablets of the amphetamine Benzedrine, according to the case files. Matthias was acting erratically, talking about how he wanted to stab a woman in the jaw. The couple told police. After he told their three-year-old daughter, I thought I'd kill you once. I guess I'll have to do it again. The man and the woman reportedly kicked Matthias out of their house and watched as he pounded on locked doors until police arrived yet other run-ins with the law. An arrest on suspicion of Grand Theft Auto, a citation for disturbing the peace and driving without a license, where he allegedly told the arresting officer, fuck you cops, all you all are motherfuckers. A slew of bar fights and complaints that he was prowling local cemeteries. So, he seems nice. This is where things start to get interesting. In 1974, Matthias was arrested in Stockton, a town about 90 miles from his home in Yuba City. And committed to a state mental hospital nearby. This was back when we still had state mental hospitals because Reagan, the then governor, hadn't gotten around to closing them yet, like he would do to the entire country, created a massive homeless and health problem because, you know, fuck them sick people. Reagan smash. He broke out, not Reagan, Matthias, although Reagan maybe. <laughs> Matthias broke out of the mental hospital by crawling out a drain pipe. Like Shawshank Redemption and then hitchhike his way home. If you've ever wondered why so many people got murdered in the 1970s and 80s, think about that for a second. People hit, picked up hitchhiker, presumably in hospital attire, and covered in mud in the vicinity of State Mental Hospital. And there's your answer. Nor was that his first or last mental hospital breakout. He'd done it from the Army Psych Hospital earlier and would do it again in 1975 from the psych ward in San Francisco. He walked back, from his grandmother's house in Oregon, a journey of over 500 miles on foot, surviving, according to Matthias, on dog food and milk he stole from people's homes and porches. Let's put a pin in that and keep thinking. According to Matthias's parents, after these episodes, Gary got his shit together. He stayed on the medications and stopped having run-ins with the police and showing up at random stranger's house demanding rent and a ring he had to return to Satan. He did that. Yes. Oh, yeah, he did. And for the next two years, he held down a job working with his father at their gardening business and joined the Gateway Project, a now-defunct Yuba City group to assist developmental disabled teens and adults, where he met other members of the social group several months before their disappearance. It isn't clear, because anyone who would know the answers is now dead, how Matthias got into the Gateway Project or hooked up with the group as he was not, you know... Come on, say it. Differently abled. Also, some people associated with the Gateway Project were concerned about Matthias. The basketball coach of the boys' Special Olympics League team said of Matthias that he could, quote, possibly flip out at any time, unquote. And according to the Bee, a, quote, 1978 interview with Matthias's long-term acquaintance, Janet Inzera, Matthias had repeatedly told Inzera of a dream where he and several other people would disappear. <laughs> In Zara called Matthias a very violent person, hurting several men seriously, and said that he also hates women. The other boy's parents weren't comfortable with Matthias either, even though they didn't seem to know about his criminal record. He was a stronger personality, the only one among them who could fight back if threatened, according to investigators. Of the five missing boys, the case file said, he would be the most likely to lead and suggest places to go or things to do, unquote. So... Is it possible the Gary Mathias, the forceful, mentally acute schizophrenic, had something to do with these men being miles and miles of bad mountain roads in a blizzard where they had no business being? Why would he do such a thing? Would it surprise you to t- if I told you? that Gary was almost certainly not on his schizophrenia medication the night they disappeared. Because they were playing in a big basketball tournament the next day and Gary felt the medications made him slow and Logie, he usually stopped taking the meds a few days prior to a tournament, according to statements from the time. So... He could very well have been in the throes of a psychotic break on the night in question. Gary very well could have lured the other boys in the mountains and left them there to die as he walked out of the mountains and into history as he had done so many times before. Highly unlikely, but possible. I don't buy the Gary did it theory, because no one has seen her from Gary since. And also... Gary's mental illness wasn't the go berserk and kill a bunch of people kind and the coroner's report all holds that at least some of the men were alive and had been cared for it for weeks after their vanishing there's a pretty decent evidence that Matthias was in the trailer where Weir's body was found and Madruga's body was found nearby I mean Gary's shoes were there and wires wires were missing he pined that Gary took them I don't see Matthias who admittedly was off his meds in the weeks after they got up and gone because he didn't have them with him, slowly watching his friends starve to death and die of gangrene while he noshed on army rations. It doesn't fit with his previous behavior during psychotic breaks. He had violent episodes, but he wasn't a psychopath. And I just don't think Gary did it. The evidence we have doesn't fit. So what happened? Let us now examine three theories and see where they take us. Theory number one. The woman with the baby in the red pickup truck. Witness Joseph Sean told police he saw what may have been the five boys in the company of a woman and a baby, and perhaps one or two other men, hours after they disappeared up in the mountains, near where their car was found. Admittedly, Sean's story is complicated because dude was in the middle of a heart attack when it happened, but let's take it at face value. Some. Posit that the five were approached at Bear's Market in Chico, where they stopped for snacks by the woman who lured them, possibly with a sad story about her child, into giving her a ride, perhaps to recover the child or to get medicine for the child. Again, I'm speculating on other speculation. The young men would, according to their families, be taken in by such a story and were the kind of people who would help a stranger in need. Not so much Matthias, but Madruga, definitely, and he was the only one allowed to drive the car, so everyone else was going along for the ride. After driving up to the snow line where the car was stopped, they met with the people in the red truck, and they were taken deeper into the mountains and held for, I don't know, reasons? For sex reasons fine for sex reasons. And this might explain why some of them were seen two days later, miles away, buying burritos. But eventually, they were abandoned somewhere in the mountains and found their way to the Ford Service trailer where their bodies were eventually discovered. Perhaps Matthias was killed and dumped elsewhere because he gave the most problems or perhaps he tried to walk out and find help. Either way, Gary Matthias is dead and the mystery group remains unknown. Well, I find that highly unlikely,
1: but okay, maybe.
0: Theory number two. This one actually comes from Reddit and a Redditor named Beryllium in a 2017 Reddit post. Quote, psych meds, especially what you get in 1978, came with side effects that weren't particularly helpful on the basketball court. So I think Matthias stopped taking his meds in anticipation of the game. That night, as they were driving back, he has a mental break and becomes convinced someone is following him. The other guys have no idea what's happening, so they follow along. They try to lose their tail. I bet Matthias was de facto leader of the group. He was the highest functioning and had the most worldly experience. They drive up the mountain road. They get stuck. They walk out of the car to see how badly they're stuck. At this point, I'm guessing the other guys are starting to argue with Matthias that they need to turn around and go home. But what happens instead? Out of the darkness on an isolated mountain road, a man starts calling to them. Matthias freaks out. The other guys think, holy shit, he was right. And they set out on foot with flashlights. The guy calls to them again. See, I told you I was being followed. They turn off their flashlights and blindly stumble along the road until they reach the tree trailer. There was no woman and a baby. The witness was wrong about that. I'm guessing Matthias was in a full-on mental break the whole time they were in the trailer together or he left really early on. The others died before they got to the trailer. Unquote. I'm not going to lie, pod friends. I like this theory. It fits with the evidence. It even makes sense. Maybe not all the specifics, but just the general situation. And you know what? I'm going to add one thing. Maybe all the wheat? The weed. Oh, come on. This was Northern California in the 1970s. They were smoking weed. You got five guys, maybe not the brightest guys in the, in the world, but, you know, normal guys. They're blazing up, and all of a sudden, a hi- little high kicks in. A little schizophrenic break from not having your meds, and boom, you got a car full of guys convinced someone is after them, and they're going to take off up to the mountains to get away from whomever is following. Simple, easy, sad, but logical. Weed, snowy night, and rain, you got to freak out. Everyone drives into the mountains, and once they're up there, they're lost, and everything else follows. Also, being stormed out of their gourd explains the car window being down and the lack of damage to the undercarriage from the roads. I mean, they were high. They couldn't have been driving more than five miles an hour until the wheels skidded and they stopped. Who amongst us has not gotten paranoid while smoking up and thinking someone was after them and then had had it spread to everyone you were smoking with? Pretty soon, you're hiding in the bathroom, convinced the feds are going to kick down your door because you're holding three joints. Bad weed, bad weather, maybe Gary to lose it a little bit, and shit could happen. Just makes sense to me. And finally, we arrive at theory number three. All of this conjecture and wild speculation is missing the Occam's Razor explanation that most fits the facts as we know them. Aliens, huh? I know that you think I'm crazy right now, and you absolutely should. Before you judge me, let me tell you this. My skeptical, evidence-based, common-sense-utilizing listener, the vanishing of the boys fits perfectly in a pattern of strange disappearances in and around national forests and parks that goes back at least a century, if not much, much, much longer. Listen to researcher David is talking to George Nori, the ultimate authority, on Coast to Coast
1: AM. Now step back for a second in our work. We deal with rural disappearances with a set of criteria. And that criteria can be people with disabilities, people that disappear with canines, missing or found, and they disappear near bodies of water. And sometimes they disappear in one of the 34 geographical clusters we've identified in North America. Inclement weather is associated with the disappearances. Swamps, briar p- patch- uh, patches play a predominant role. In a vast majority of the cases, these occur in the late afternoon or evening. If the missing are found alive, majority of the times they either refuse to discuss the incident or they don't remember the incident. And a vast majority of the times they're, find, they're found semi-conscious or unconscious. And the last one is many of the missing are found in areas previously searched, sometimes as much as 50 times. Sometimes they're found on the main trail coming back to the search and rescue locations.
0: Lest you think that David Polites is just some whacknut because he's also a Bigfoot researcher. Let me read to you from a 2017 article, an outside online magazine. Quote, Polites speaking here. I don't put any theories in the books. So I just connect the facts he told me. Under the unique factors of disappearance, he lists recurring characteristics of dogs and able to track since The time late afternoon is a popular window to vanish and that many victims are found with clothing and footwear removed. Bodies are also discovered in previously searched areas with odd frequencies. And the trail to that trailer had been searched, pod friends. Sometimes right alongside the trail, children and remains are occasionally found in improbable distances from point last seen. Mm-hmm. Such as 40 miles into the mountains, far away from the route that they should be taking to drive home. Yes. And in improbable terrain. It's tempting to dismiss Polides as a crypto kook, and some search and rescue professionals do, but his books are extensively researched. On a large map of North America on his office walls, Polides has identified 59 clusters of people missing on federal wildlands in the U.S. and southern Canada. To qualify as a cluster, there must be at least four cases, according to his pins. You want to watch your step in Yosemite, Crater Lake, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, and Rocky Mountain National Parks, unquote. Do you know that they are one disappearance short, called the Sierra Nevadas in Northern California, near the site where the boys went missing, away from being a cluster? If the boys were counted, it would be. Pilates' research has found credible documentary evidence of over 1,600 people who just went missing in national parks and national forests in the United States and Canada. All this excludes cases of known suicidal ideations, drug connections, criminal histories, and the other usual reasons for people that go missing. Like, say, not being able to... To cover the extensive bar tab. Just regular folks who go missing in and around these locations, and an unusual number of these people had either physical or developmental impairments, just like the U.S. City Five. People simply vanish within feet of parents or friends without a trace. Search and rescue efforts are launched with hundreds of people's dogs, helicopters, and horseback that er scour the area where they vanish for weeks and do not find anything. Just like the Yuba City Five. If they were attacked by animals, clothing and blood spore would be found, but none is. Then months, sometimes years later, their bodies turn up in areas extensively searched at the time of their disappearance. Just like the Yuba City Five. Sometimes in unusually pristine conditions despite having been allegedly exposed to the elements for long periods of time. This happens with astonishing frequency. And incidents like these have been documented for at least a century according to Pilates. Has David Pilates stumbled into the answer we're looking for in this mystery? Or? He's a nutbag. That is up to you to decide. But listen. For me, this is too much to possibly be a coincidence. With through their looking glass people, being aliens, extraterrestrial entities, skinwalkers, Sasquatches looking for a fuckboy, or reptiloid aliens using the underground tunnel network that crisscrosses this country, snatching humans for snacks and experiments, clearly we cannot discount the possibility that the Yuba City Five were involved in something paranormal, and I think, I think... This is how it might have gone down, backed up by only my wild speculation and experience living in the area. The boys leave the market with their snacks and begin the drive back to Yuba City on the rain-slicked highway when a force overcomes them. Perhaps they were compelled to take the turns leading them into the mountains, or more likely due to the condition of the Montego's undercarriage, which bore no signs of driving over rough roads. They were snatched from the highway by an alien craft and transported into the remote hills of the Plumas National Forest where their car was deposited. What Joseph Sean thought were headlights in the throes of a sudden and mysterious heart attack, which I maintained was neither but the effect of an alien weapon, was actually the lights of a UFO, and the mysterious woman and baby were in fact gray aliens. A large gray and a small who were collecting the boys and transporting them to their craft, leaving Sean alone in the night. The men were then held, experimented on. They were kept alive for months, explained while Weir was emaciated when the coroner crawled frostbite and gangrene on his body, the untreated marks of vivisection as his flesh were removed for whatever nefarious purpose the alien were pursuing. Then Hewitt Madruga and Sterling also met their grisly ends in the chambers of the alien craft, and their bodies were dumped when they deposited weir in the remote forest service camp. And Matthias. I believe the Greys kept Matthias for further study, his psychological condition being of interest to them, as they are keen to understand the workings of the human brain. Perhaps Gary is still alive in the deep bowels of Dolce Bay's, or perhaps only his brain... In one of the mini vat rooms where the human minds are stored by aliens, alive but disembodied, screaming silently, only heard by their own consciousness in the black vaults of Americans underground alien stronghold. It happens all the time, and it happens still today. <laughs> <laughs> That is it for our show this week, part two of the disappearance of the Yuba County Five. Well, you think I was going to give you the answer to this story, like some jackass with a podcast based entirely on the same cheap internet crap everyone else has is going to come up with some grand theory no one else has thought of? All I know is you gotta be careful when you go to Chico. You never know what might happen. Or when your friends will just abandon you because you went off to hook up with some hippie chick with dreadlocks and a pinch on for fucking while listening to the Grateful Dead. No, Scott, I'm still not over it. How the fuck was I supposed to get home, you jealous bastard? You could have said something at least. I guess compared to getting lost in the mountains and abducted by aliens, I got off light. I mean, I, 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 I totally made up that alien's Part I, I dug around everywhere looking for a UFO flap in the area. I couldn't find shit, so I, I just shoehorned in the missing people in the park story because it's fucking Halloween, and I needed to make it spooky. And also, it's always aliens. And that brings me to a transition to the spectacular, which continues with even more... Aliens! Next week, when we kick off our two-parter about the Rindlesham Forest UFO incident. It has everything. Strange Lights, Air Force Cops, British Accents, MTV's Dan Cortez. So be sure to check that out. Rate and review us wherever you get your spooky pods. That helps others find the show and get very, very angry when the show isn't very spooky and is mostly just a forward promo for shows that we haven't done yet. The show is on all the socials of the hell underscore podcast <laughs> on Twitter and what the hell podcast on Facebook. You got a dollar? You want to hear another spooky story about people going missing in the mountains? Check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. It's all the shows that we've got going here, but ad-free and early this week. Our very own producer Gavin is doing a spooky special about the, At- the Atla Pass incident, because he doesn't believe in any of this, and <laughs> it pisses him off that I've made him do it. Ha <laughs> ha! You can get that if you just donate a buck. You got a few dollars more, kick it in for some cool, cool swag. So, ah, God, Gavin is so mad I'm making him do this because I'm making him work on the weekend. (laughs) So, for me, Dave, am I high or is that car following us, bro? Bledsoe, producer, shit, dude, I think you're right, Gavin. And all the fictional paranoid pot smokers on this show, we want to say, over the mountain, they took them across the sky? Aussie knew, bro. Aussie knew. And the spooktacular continues next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. Shows produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com Podcast.com, or on Twitter at the Hell Underscore Podcast, or on Facebook as What the Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening.
1: I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. The Kings Podcasts.